country roads take me home it's a me mario we're talking about mountains this week (laughs) west virginia (laughs) that is next week (laughs) this week is ancient greece (laughs) and also the rest of europe but you know we always start somewhere anyway the point is mountains have long been you know a sacred site for a lot of human cultures and civilizations. So how do we go from, hey, Mount Olympus is there, but let's not go and bother the gods who live up there, to now, where we're like, Mount Everest, more like a trash heap. Am I right, buddies? Am I right? Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margot, And I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of Season 3, and subscribe to get notified every time we post. Hey! Hello! Mountains! Let's talk about them. Olympus. And others. (laughs) Etc. So, yeah, I guess it's time to talk about mountains. So, I'm going to start out with prehistory. Humans have been present in mountains since basically time immemorial. Like, we have the remains of Otzi, who lived in the 4th millennium BC, who was found in the Alps. Um, However, for the most part, like, despite people living in and around mountains, um, the highest mountain ranges were very rarely visited for, you know, eons. Uh, And we're typically associated with supernatural or religious or mythological concepts. However, um, there basically are, right, like, mountain climbing as we think about it today was not formalized into a sport until the 19th century. Conquer that mountain! Precisely. However, people did in fact, like, climb mountains to an extent pre-19th century um you know but it was it was normally for like we must climb because of like you know war or migration you know think less uh you know hillary climbing mount everest and think more von trapp family leaving Austria <laughs> like that kind of mountain climbing <laughs> that was the more normal kind of mountain climbing so this week's episode we're going to talk about how this happened right we, how we go from this idea of mountains as like just like a beautiful part of the landscape um a, a place where where you know gods and goddesses and supernatural beings reside um, maybe a place where you are driving your goats up or, yeah. or doing other sort of subsistence activities and how now they've really become a very like heavily touristed area and how it becomes this like, ah, yes, I must conquer this mountain. And the only way to truly like appreciate this is to reach the very summit. So... Let's get started, as we normally do, in ancient Greece. So, Mount Olympus is the highest peak in ancient Greece, and 
was for a long time regarded as the home of the gods and the, um, you know, basically that is where the 12 Olympians resided. And, you know, they would, of course, have other visitors. They'd have other people living there. But it was, you know, normally where their their main pantheon was hanging out, eating ambrosia, drinking nectar, etc. It was also considered the site of the War of the Titans, where Zeus and his siblings defeated the Titans. Titans. The Titans. <laughs> However, this was not the only special mountain to the ancient Greeks. You also had Mount Othrys, which is a mountain in central Greece, and was supposed to be the home of the Titans during the ten-year war with the gods of Mount Olympus. Right? So they had, like... They, they got driven to the lesser mountain um, during that 10-year war. You also had Mount Ida, which is known as the Mountain of the Goddess. And there's, it's, it's some, there's some uh, issues regarding, like, knowing exactly who was supposedly living on this mountain. But we do know that there... There are basically two of these mountains. There's Mount Ida on Crete and Mount Ida in what is today Turkey. So Mount Ida in Crete was allegedly supposed to be the sacred mountain of the Titaness Rhea, who was also the mother of the Greek gods. And then the other Mount Ida is supposed <laughs> to be located in northwestern Turkey alongside the ruins of Troy. Okay. The point is, there's a lot of fancy mountains in greek mythology right and you know we also have you know just in general greece and surrounding areas a lot of mountainous places right and it makes sense that you know a lot of people would look to these mountains um like and say yeah that's probably where the gods live way high up up there and it's like put these sort of spiritual and mythological elements onto these locations. Um, that's not to say that, as I mentioned before, that they weren't using these mountains. Um, mm -hmm. A big part of the reason that goats and sheep are, um, a, well, a specific types of sheep are so abundant, right, in Greek culture and cuisine is because it is so mountainous. And hey, guess what thrives on mountains? goats um because they're able to you know you, you can drive your goats up into the mountains and they can they, they're not too fussy about what they eat yeah they're um, just like vibing yeah they're just like hanging out um their hooves are shaped in such a way that it's easy for them to grab onto little rocks <laughs> yeah. and things sheep are a little bit more picky but you know it, it's not like cows right where like <laughs> no they need a flat yeah place basically um so again, you know, people were living in and amongst these mountains, but, you know, you, you see that like joke going around sometimes where it's like, wow, the, Greece, the, the, the Greeks really were just like living by Mount Olympus and no one wanted to go check if the gods were up there. <laughs> but also like, would you go check? No. Have you heard the stories about Zeus? <laughs> I wouldn't go check. <laughs> I'd be like, mm, staying away from that mountain. And also any animals that might be in, near, or around yes. that mountain. And also just, like, the physical danger of falling. That's also true. 
Um, we also have to remember these are times before, like, oxygen tanks and stuff. So, like, it would take you a long time. Like, you know, I'm sure somebody climbed up there at some point. But this idea that, like, wow, why wasn't everyone climbing the tops of mountains all the time? It's like, but why would you? You know? Like, it's spooky up there. It's scary. It's skeletons. Like, no thank you. Uh, that but, makes sense. Yeah. And Spooky, scary skeletons. We also, of course, have, you know, this sort of mountain mythology that, similarly to how I was talking about the forests in the first episode of season three, mountain, like these, these mythological creatures, right, that live in the mountains vary across cultures, but... Most places in pre-Christian Europe that had mountains had some kind of stories about um, what lives up there. What non-human <laughs> thing is living up there. So in Norse and Germanic culture, you had the dwarves, um, which is basically a type of like fairy or supernatural creature like who lived in the interiors of mountains and the lower levels of mines. This is, like, what Tolkien based his dwarves off of, but, you know, Tolkien's dwarves were, you know, like, quite a bit larger than um, most of most of what actually would have been spoken about as a dwarf in, right. like, the Norse mythos and stuff, right? Um to my understanding, at least, and from what I've read about it, normally they were supposed to be about the height of, like, a very small child, so maybe, like, a two-year-old, three-year-old wow. size, right? Because they're supposed to be small because they live in the, in mountain. the mountain. Like, it, it would yeah. be closer to, like, something that we would think of as, like, like you may think, like, a gnome or something, right? right? Where they're very little. Yeah. Um. And in the... You know, in these Teutonic and Scandinavian myths, there was also quite a variety of what they could look like. Sometimes they were sort of small and beautiful and, like, kind of dainty, and it could be anything from that to, like, what we would think of as, like, like closer to how it's depicted in Lord of the Rings, where they're, like, grizzled and beards and old men, <laughs> you know? Um, but typically, these... Mountain dwarves were supposed to be organized into kingdoms or tribes, and they would have their own, right, like, courts and chieftains and armies. Right. And they lived in subterranean halls that were meant to be full of gold and precious stones and materials and, you know, all kinds of fabulous jewelry. And they're known for their, their craftsmanship and their smithing skills because, again, they're living in the mountains. The mountains are where you get metal, they're where you get precious gems, so it makes sense that the magical creatures that live there are fabulously wealthy. <laughs> and, of course, as with many like mythological and legendary creatures, they are supposed to have certain magical abilities, right, where they can maybe, depending on the type of like, dwarf you're talking about, and, like, what their position in dwarf society is. They could foresee the future, they could make themselves invisible, they might have, like, skill in other forms of magic, um, particularly being able to forge magical swords and rings. Ooh. <laughs> so, again, very much 
you've read right, any of Right, because it's the... a dwarf that makes the ring in, uh, like, the the ring cycle. Like, yes. Like, in the sagas. Yes. Yeah. And, like, you know, like, it's a dwarf that makes Thor's hammer and, like, that kind of stuff, yeah. right? And normally they were similar to the forest creatures that we talked about in the previous episodes. Um, often they could be very kindly if you were behaving respectfully. Mm -hmm. But if you were upsetting them, if you were rude to them, if you offended them, if you harmed their mountain homes, then they would be very, very vengeful. So, you know, if you were staying in your lane, they might help you with your agricultural work. Like, they might find your stray animals that, you know, had wandered into the mountains and help them go back home. Or the, the I think this one is very nice, where they would leave stacks of firewood and stacks of fruit <laughs> for, like, impoverished children who were, like, right? Because if you were a, a peasant child, you might be sent up to, like gather wood and gather fruit in the mountains so they were helping out the little peasant children <laughs> yeah but again they could also they, they might also um be mischievous they might steal some corn or sorry like corn being like the it was a generic word for like grains right um prior to people knowing that the, the introduction Amer of maize yes the introduction of maize um so that's how it is in my notes, but it wouldn't be like corn as we think of it. It would be like barley, <laughs> oats. And, you know, sometimes they might, you know, like cause cause some minor trouble like that. Occasionally there are stories about them abducting children or young women, but those seem to be roughly few and far between. For the most part, they just didn't want to, um, you know, it, it was very... You don't bother us, we won't bother you, kind of deal. Um, in particular, though, they would be very angry if you stole any of their treasures, because you would either be met with great misfortune thereafter, because mm -hmm. you would be cursed, or uh, when you got home, you would find that all the treasures you had stolen from them had turned into, like, rocks or dead leaves or something worthless right like leprechaun gold yeah exactly like leprechaun gold right so that was sort of the general relation between humans and dwarves um dwarves in mines could be a little bit more spiteful than just the generic mountain dwarf <laughs> um so miners would actually leave gifts of food to placate uh. them and make sure that you know kind of let them know like okay we know that you're here we know that you're also mining in this mountain but like we're just we're gonna stay on these upper levels because we can't go as deep as you um and you right. know please don't get please us don't crushed. bother us please don't hurt us right so it's again very like we have to show some respect. Yeah. We have to behave appropriately. Um, also, we have in Eastern Europe, right, the early Slavs thought of Perun, who was like kind of the the main god, who was the god of thunder, etc., etc. Um, and he was supposed to be another being who like lived in the mountains and he was a god of justice that could punish people if they misbehaved mm -hmm. he could send thunder and lightning to destroy your village he could send a war to ravage you so 
you know, he's basically sort of sitting on top of the mountains and watching the tribes below kind of like <laughs> looming over them. Um, and there, there do appear to be a lot of mountains throughout Eastern Europe named after him, um, such as the Pirin Mountains in Bulgaria. There's also the Perun Mountain in Bosnia and the Perun Mountain in Croatia. There's, if you look up Perun Mountain, like there's just so many of them. Many, many. Right. Um, you can also look at the Carpathian Mountains, where you have a lot of different legends. So the Carpathian Mountains run through, like, Poland, Ukraine, Romania, like mm -hmm. that mountain range. So there were um, all kinds of creatures that were supposed to live there. So you have... So you have beings like the Mulfares or the Solomonari, who were basically mountain spirits who could control the weather. So they could dissolve clouds, they could summon thunder, they could speak to animals, and they could levitate. Uh, this is also like in Tolkien, because yeah. Kararas like, brings the storm on. Mm -hmm. Like in the, in the movie, they make it Saruman, but it's actually the mountain that does it in the books. Yes, yeah. So it's, again, you're annoying the mountain. You've done something that the mountain doesn't want you to do. And they're like, fine, then. Time for a storm. Time for some nonsense. And there's also the Trugeister, who's the woodman. And he lives in the forest and likes to uh, sing and dance. He would be in the, like, forests of the Carpathian Mountains because they're very, like... You know, they're, they're not the Himalayas, right? Like, there's yeah. forested mountains. And he's actually quite nice, but, you know, he will invite you as a visitor to sing and dance with him and will protect herdsmen who offer him food. So he's one of the nicer ones, but, you know, you still do not want to anger this being. And it's like, okay, I gotta, I gotta dance then. Time to, <laughs> time to do what he says. Like, I thought I could get home tonight, but... Mm, there's also right different um, different localities within the mountains that are supposed to be kind of scarier. So you have Lake Nesnamovite, which is the frantic lake, and it's a glacial lake in the Carpathians. And the bottom of the lake is supposed to have a frozen mirror, which brings storms to terrorize people who upset the area. And also serves as the destination for the souls of sinners. So you have to go into the frozen mirror frantic lake if you were bad. I think I'm already living in the frozen mirror frantic lake. Well, I don't think so. It's quite warm outside today. <laughs> I have been living in the frozen mirror frantic lake. It's just called being in Montreal in winter, though. <laughs> Frozen mirror flantic really make. <laughs> I think that the frantic part is not necessarily Montreal's doing. Yes, that's just that's just our own doing. <laughs> there is also a a being called Baba Deutsche, who's not oh, Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga. Yes, because for anyone unfamiliar, Baba just means like grandma or like old yeah. woman. So Baba Yaga is like old lady Yaga. Yeah. So Baba Deutsche is old lady Deutsche. 
And there's a story out of Romania that tells of an elderly lady who forced her daughter-in-law to go into the forest in the Carpathian Mountains to pick berries during winter, which is (laughs) obviously impossible. And basically upon... I'm so glad that my mother-in-law is nice. Yeah. (laughs) Same. (laughs) She doesn't make me pick berries in the winter. Um, so basically this poor girl, she starts crying because she has this impossible task. (laughs) Same. (laughs) And I mean, this is a Christian story, I guess, or Christianized because in the version I found it's God appears in the form of an old man and sends her berries to bring back. Mm -hmm. But then this surprises Baba Deutsche, who's like the old Old woman woman. witch living in the woods and thought that spring had returned. So she sets her flock out onto the mountains and removes her coats and, like, shawls and stuff to cool herself down. But as she reaches the mountaintop, winter suddenly returns, and then it freezes her in place and her sheep into a rock rock formation known as the Babele. So you can look that up. And there's an actual B-A-B-E-L-E. And that's the story of that rock formation. So... Essentially, right, there are these ideas already about the mountains and that they are these sacred places, spiritual places, that this is a place where magical things can happen, that this is a place where there's all kinds of interesting creatures and interesting folklore coming up around it. And of course, even when the Middle Ages, you know, kind of begin and we get this Christianization, as we see in the story about Baba Deutsche, right? It's not like, oh, suddenly the mountains are no longer like a magical place. It's just the kind of provenance of that shifts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get more and more stories where it's about, um, you know, God or about saintly figures who are doing miracles on the mountains. And then you also have other kind of Christianized versions of folk creatures who begin to enter this this idea of mountainsides. It's also very important because you end up in this situation where, uh, I mean, as, as I've spoken about before, the population of Europe is growing and growing, and at the same time, the climate is warming because you are hitting what's called the medieval warm period, which would be about, like, a few degrees warmer. <laughs> Sorry, I love these things where it's like... <laughs> Oh no. Here is a thing. What do you think happened during this thing? I don't know. Was it warm? <laughs> Historians are not great at naming things, yeah. although I do like the period that comes after it is called the Little Ice Age. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, nobody gave this, like, I don't know. You, we can call it something else if that helps. We can call it, like, the warm and cozy medieval period. <laughs> no. <laughs> So the point is, it was quite warm, which means that higher up into the... Like, you basically, in the Middle Ages, could go higher into the mountains than mm. you normally could um, because, basically, it it didn't get so, so cold. So the tree line got higher, basically, which means plants can grow higher, which means you can take your herds higher into the mountains. Right. Um, particularly in the Alps, transhumance was practiced um i mean it's it has been practiced since like the neolithic but it becomes more intense during the middle ages because 
again, you can go up higher into these mountains. <laughs> so you would seasonally drive your grazing livestock between the valleys in the winter and the high mountain pastures in summer so that you would, you know, yeah. give them a variety of foods and also not exhaust any Everything one pasture. In a place. And that's actually where the term Alps comes from. Um, if you look at the, it means the, it comes from, oh, I cannot say German words. The German word Alpwirtschaft or Almwirtschaft, which <laughs> is a term that means seasonal mountain pasture. So it's, oh. so it's uh, abbreviated to the Alps. Hmm. So basically it is a, this is a very traditional uh, way of life, way of, you know, grazing your sheep and goats and such. And it has been ongoing in Bavaria, Austria, Slovenia, Italy, France, and Switzerland. But yes, essentially, you have this going on in the mountains of... In, in the mountains where that's essentially how people are spending their time. And of course, it has really shaped the cultures and like ways of life of the people who live there. Um, so things like yodeling or like right to communicate in yeah. the mountains. Um, also, again, you might have more in the way of, because of a growing population, you would have more and more um, like actual farming that mm -hmm. fa actual like arable land would be extended to go into the mountains at the high point of the middle ages where like kind of at the base of the mountain like oh, okay. farms begin to encroach you meant, like up i don't think oh no no not not like up 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 but like yeah. it it is able to go from like only in the valleys to mm -hmm. like hmm, we can have some like terraced like right right so that becomes a a big thing and we do start to see the shifting of these um, certain certain creatures into being more of like a Christianized version over the course of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period. My favorite of these is the Bergmonk, who's the mountain monk, <laughs> who's a mountain spirit from German folklore. He's also known as Meister Hammerling, which is master hammering guy. So he is a monk, but he's a giant monk, and he has white hair and fiery-looking eyes, and he wears a black hooded cowl, like the way that monks wear, which is mm -hmm. where he gets his name. Sometimes, though, he is also dressed as a miner, and that, that seems to be the distinction, that if he's wearing the monk mm -hmm. hood, then he's the Bergmonch, and if he's dressed like a miner, then he's Meister Hammerling. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm pronouncing it that way, but I cannot possibly say that name any other way. So, basically, there's... He's supposed to live in these pits and mines of the mountains, mm -hmm. and he is very busy particularly on Fridays where he takes the excavated ores and just moves them from one bucket to another and everyone is just supposed to not mention it because he gets very angry if anyone tells him that that's pointless and that his work is meaningless 
So you're just supposed to let him like move around ores. So I think it's sort of a like, oh, like this ore that we've been mining, it's gone missing or it's it seems like it's moved. Or, mm. And it's like, oh, well, there's an explanation for that. It's, it's the it's Meister Hammerling. Okay. Um, and he's normally meant to be erratic and dangerous. <laughs> so he has poisonous breath that can kill 12 people at once. He sometimes will grab a miner and move him and set him down with so much force that all his limbs shatter. And apparently also will punish anybody who says mean things about him. So, you know, you don't want to upset him. But he will also apparently help good miners and punish evil ones. So he will punish you for vices like whistling or cursing or infidelity or idleness. So keep that in mind. Uh, apparently in one telling, there is an evil foreman in the, in the mines and mm -hmm. he crushes this man's head between his knees <laughs> to save all the other miners from his cruelty. Um... But he will also, you know, do things like he's he is in legends of, you know, the miners are deep in the mine and their oil lamp isn't, you mm -hmm. know, it it's running out and then he he, you know, leaves them a lamp or leaves them some oil so that they're able to get out again. Uh -huh. And he might also like direct you to air to veins of gold or of silver. So again, you really just don't want to upset all of these and that's just one of them like there's many many spirits who remain in the mountains and like mm -hmm. again all the pre-christian ones like stick around but then there's just like <laughs> here's some more um so you might get the zverg who are sort of similar to the dwarves as i described earlier there's also the malevolent spirit of the swabian salt pits who is the salt ghost and throws everyone over the mountain if they make fun of his big nose <laughs> because he's just like trying to live in his salt mine. <laughs> he's a salty guy. <laughs> but so that's essentially the way that mountains are being used and thought of and conceptualized right in the middle ages is simultaneously, like there is the idea of them being this sort of divine place um particularly because right like with um with the introduction of christianity there are like plenty of sacred mountains in the bible like mount sinai and that yeah. kind of thing um so you see it a lot in medieval artwork where in in paintings of a religious nature there will often be mountains in the background mm -hmm. because it's sort of seen as this like a, a place that is close to the heavens it's seen as this like place of divine beauty um, as something that like God has created like essentially that's that's part of like, like this very very high up place something that's both beautiful in the landscape and sort of awe inspiring right? right so it's that idea of connecting like the, the connection of mountains and the divine stays mm -hmm. there and you know obviously people are climbing the mountains to like graze their flocks to travel from place to place to do assorted mining um but the concept of mountain climbing is in mountaineering 
we do not get until the like age of enlightenment and the romantic era <laughs> and that's when you see this huge change of attitudes towards high mountains so it kind of moves away from mountains as a divine place or a sacred place or even just a place of work mm -hmm. to something that a person can conquer and claim and like you can can experience the sublime by yeah. like reaching the very pinnacle of this mountain and it can be this individual experience rather than like a part of your community that herds goats up the mountain every summer right yeah so we start seeing this kind of the first like high mountain climber that in in this sort of trend, this trajectory would be the Swiss scientist Horace Benedict de Saussure. Saussure? How do I pronounce his <laughs> last name? Saussure, right? Saussure. Saussure? Okay, let me try that again. I, I mean, like, I'm not a native French speaker, but. Well, it that's looks what like I'm going to do. That's what, I'm, that's what I guessed, but I'm like, in case I'm being an idiot. So, the first person that we see you know, kind of recorded as being in this sort of new school of thought about the mountains would have been Horace Benedict de Saussure, who was a Swiss scientist. And in 1757, he made the first of several unsuccessful attempts to reach the peak of Mont Blanc in France. He offered a reward to anyone who could climb the mountain, and Jacques Balmat managed to do it in 1786 and Michel Gabriel Picard. Sorry, I should have said them, both their names at once, but I had that slowly in my notes. The point is, they're the ones who made it up. It was kind of considered like the, and, and now in mountaineering, that is sort of considered the birth of the sport, right? Where right. like someone was able to make it to the very peak of this high mountain successfully. And after this point, it just grew more and more popular. By the early 19th century, many of the alpine peaks were managed to be reached. Um, for example, Ortler in 1804 and Jungfrau in 1811 and Breithorn in 1813. So there's, um, you know, like more and more people who particularly I mean, th this is not something, right, that, like, peasants are necessarily able to do. This is, like, a well-off person's sport. And that's going on on the continent. And it slowly kind of shifts. Like, it, it grows in popularity outside of continental Europe closer to the mid-19th century. So... Um, mountaineering as a sport in the UK is normally seen as having started when um, Sir Alfred Wills was able to climb the Wetterhorn in 1854. And he's the one who sort of made this like a fashionable sport in Britain. And, you know, it sort of becomes this like trendy cool thing to do <laughs> and that's when the alpine club is founded shortly after in 1857 
And over time, right, like mountaineering as a sport goes from people just sort of, you know, doing a sorted, uh, attempting a lot of this on their own or maybe right. with like one other person to by the mid to late 19th century, it is becoming much more of what we would see today where you have professional guides, you have equipment, you have actual methodologies, right? Like right. You have harnesses that you're using and like specific types of like, you know, different equipment that you're using to get up the mountain. Yeah. And the thing that really seems to have like that type of mountaineering seems to have kind of first come into vogue with the first climb of the Matterhorn in 1865. And it's this big party that's led by the English illustrator Edward Wimper, uh, in which four of the party members fell to their death. <laughs> so it's it's a very... Yeah. At, at this point, it is still a very dangerous sport. It is still kind of... <laughs> they're right. still figuring out how to do this safely. And by the late 19th century, though, and into the 20th, um, people begin moving beyond Europe. They begin moving beyond the Alps and basically start looking around at other locales, basically, <laughs> where this is also becoming more fashionable. Um, where can I find bigger mountains? Exactly. <laughs> I need bigger mountains. I need the biggest one in the conquer. world. So... 1897, we see Mount St. Elias on the Alaskan-Yukon border. Um, we see the exploration of the Andes in the uh, in between 1879 and 1880, once again by Edward Wimper. Um, and it, we also see around this time that uh, Mount Kilimanjaro was climbed in 1889 by Austrian mountaineer Ludwig Perscheller and German geologist Hans Meyer. And Mount Kenya was climbed in 1899. So again, we're sort of seeing like more and more people who are spreading out doing this in the late, late uh, 19th, early 20th century and sort of the last frontier the final frontier if you will was the himalayas in south asia <laughs> the no biggest man ones. has gone before exactly <laughs> now of course um it's not like everyone was going to the himalayas that this was as, like just for funsies like they had been surveyed by the british empire for like military purposes mm -hmm. because you know <laughs> It's handy to know the lay of the mountains, but in the 1890s, we see more and more people going there as tourists, essentially, specifically to try to climb these peaks. And, you know, no one is quite able to reach the peak until Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were able to climb Mount Everest on May, like they reached the peak of Mount Everest. The summit. On the summit, thank you. Of I am no mountaineer. I do not know <laughs> the exact verbiage. But <laughs> on May 29th in 1953, they do it. They reach the top. And ta-da! Mountaineering is a sport. What a, what a great time this has been. What a, what a fun excellent thing to do now everyone has to summit mount everest yes but now we get into <laughs> the problems 
the I trouble still have is the Star Trek theme stuck in my head now. Space, the final frontier. Um. So basically, I mean, the trouble is right. Sure, this is great. Go climb a mountain. Whatever. Fun times. <laughs> However, there is... Follow your dreams. Yes. But there are issues around this, which is the fact that mountains in general, um, not just Mount Everest, but mountains in general, right? Like, they are naturally very remote regions where, like, yeah. normally in their ecosystem, there's not a lot of disturbances. Like, mm-hmm. it's a high up place where there's maybe... Some animals, some birds can reach there, and there's, like, specific plants that can flourish in that environment, and that's sort of it, right? Like, they're not used to... Precisely. It's remote. It's... The elusive creatures. Typically quiet. There's not too much disturbance. So it's a real problem when you get lots and lots of people running around disturbing these like normally remote locations where you know you get these issues of erosion you get noise pollution you can disrupt fauna and flora of the area and that's again not to say like nobody should ever climb mountains ever (laughs) that's completely fine but it's very important that it be you know, basically regulated and that there should be some amount of regulation and planning um, around what people are allowed to do. Uh, Probably the most, you know, the the most um, concerning one would be Mount Everest, as we've seen, like, I'm sure... Lots of people who are listening to this podcast have seen the exposés about what it's like to climb Mount Everest now, where it's very, really not good. (laughs) You know, on one hand, yes, Mount Everest brings in $300 million to Nepal every year from tourism. There is also this enormous human toll. Uh, There's been at least 300 people dead on the mountain since 1953. And they're still just there. And they're still just there. Um, There's an issue, of course, regarding the exploitation of local populations who are hired as guides to lead people up the mountain. Yes, thank you. Again, I don't know the words for things all the time. Um, (laughs) But it's basically an issue, right, where... The local people are being exploited, and then the local environment is becoming a problem because there is so much garbage that is left by these crews because it's not being done in... These are often quite inexperienced people who don't necessarily... are not necessarily being as responsible as they should be um, and who are not thinking in terms of, oh, okay, I should only bring... Like, I have to pack out when I'm done yeah um no they're just sort of dropping things and leaving trash leaving you know human waste etc so when in uh 2020 everything had to be shut down right and nobody was allowed to climb Mount Everest they actually were able to remove a bunch of garbage from the mountain and it was 12 tons of trash that included 
empty oxygen cylinder cylinders, plastic bottles, cans, batteries, food wrappings, fecal matter, and kitchen waste. So it it becomes a real problem, right, when you get like it it's the fact that climbing a mountain in general is a problem because you know again just just you being there like is disturbing a place that's normally quite remote and that doesn't really get much in the way of like disturbance but then adding on top of that the sheer number of people who climb mount everest um yeah and, and the inability to like make sure that everything that goes up the mountain comes down because like that's the issue with like the people who die up there aren't brought down because it's so dangerous to be up that high anyway that like at like after a certain point if you get hurt like someone helping you is risking their lives yes precisely. and so like they're not going to do the work to bring down a person who dies and all of their stuff. Yeah. Because it's just so dangerous after a certain, like, elevation. Yeah, exactly. And so there's just, like... Yeah. Yeah, and it's... They talk about it in, in Into Thin Air. Yeah. Because uh, John Krakauer oh, climbed nice. Mount Everest. And yeah. then, but while he was there, there was, like, this super deadly storm yeah. that hits. Um yeah, and I mean, so there there has been um, pushback about this. There has been there, there have been many calls um, for the Nepal government to limit right like how many permits they allow to climb Mount Everest um, to have some kind of system to kind of weed out people who are inexperienced and yeah. don't know what they're doing because it's so so dangerous that people shouldn't be doing this. Um, and again, I mean, this isn't me being like oh everything's hopeless and terrible because it does seem like there's a big you know th- th- this has been something that has been getting more and more traction and more mm. and more news coverage about you know hey if you want to climb mountains that's great don't start with mount everest <laughs> like maybe maybe like build your way up to that because really you should be like th- this should be the the final the final frontier not like a thing that you do where you're like yeah it's on my bucket list i'm gonna go climb mount everest and that's the one time i'm gonna climb a mountain so i'm gonna go up and be completely inexperienced and not know what to do and you know it it basically my message here is just if you're going to do mountaineering excellent great have fun do it responsibly though and like you know, I think that there is something to be said about the way that, I mean, modernity, right? Like, we are so lucky that, like, there's photography, there's video, like, you can see Mount, like, you can see at the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> you can see it right now. Yeah. You can Google a picture. You can Google so many pictures. You can Google videos. Like, you know, I think that there's something to be said for this, like, hey, we should maybe go back to viewing mountains as, like, an important ecosystem and like somewhat of a like protected important place that we should show respect to rather than this like ah yes I must conquer this place because it's like it's a big rock it's just a great big rock (laughs) 
And I think that that's, you know, there, there are many ways to enjoy this without turning it into a literal trash heap. So just Googling the summit of Mount Everest. Yeah, you can, you can see so much. They have the 3D, the, you know, where you can see it. You can Google Earth this. Oh, the first the first thing that comes up when you Google it is Mount Everest. Why the summit can get so crowded. Yeah, apparently there's also issues of people like jostling and shoving each other out of the way so that they can be on the very, very summit of it. Yeah, and it's like, I mean, I'm looking at it and it's literally a ribbon of where you can stand. Oh my god, that is so scary. Yeah. Yeah. Why I won't be joining... Why I won't be joining the queue at the top of Everest. (laughs) Adventure tourism. Okay. Thank you for that. I hope everyone has a nice time out in nature. (laughs) Take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.